Welcome back, or welcome if it's your first time to Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. Today we are delving into one of my favorite subjects, the Revolutionary War, specifically the Southern Theater. And I'm going to be speaking with John Moss, who is the author of The Battle of Guilford Courthouse, which will be available beginning March 2nd, 2020. Around the North Carolina village of Guilford Courthouse in the late winter of 1781, two weary armies clashed on a cold, wet afternoon. American forces under Nathaniel Green engaged Lord Cornwallis' British Army in a bitter two-hour battle of the Revolutionary War. The frightful contest at Guilford was a severe conflict in which troops made repeated use of their flintlock muskets, steel bayonets, and dragoon swords in hand-to-hand fighting that killed and wounded about 800 men. Historian John R. Ross recounts the bloody battle and the grueling campaign in the South that led up to it, a crucial event on the road to American independence. John Moss is an education staff member of the new National Museum of the U.S. Army at Fort Belvoir, and Dr. Moss received a Ph.D. in early American history at The Ohio State University. He is the author of several books and numerous articles on early U.S. military history, including North Carolina and the French and Indian War, Spreading Flames of War, Defending a New Nation, 1783 to 1811, The Road to Yorktown, Jefferson Lafayette, and the British Invasion of Virginia, and George Washington's of Virginia. Hey, thanks for being thanks for being on with me. I really I really did enjoy your book, and it's a uh, it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, the Southern oh, Theater of the War, uh, very much so. And I know you got to get on the road, so we'll jump right into it. Okay. All right. So, Doc uh, John, this is. John, this is not only a book about the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, but it's also about operations in the South and North Carolina leading up to that battle. And we'll, we'll of course, talk about the battle, um, but I also want to talk about the events leading up and to show the amazing and incredible detail and wide scope you've presented in the fascinating book. And I know I'm talking a lot right now, but I want everyone all over the country to get this book because I reenact as a member of the Charlestown Battalion of Artillery. And there are so many people that are surprised about the Revolutionary War history in the South. In fact, when I'm talking to people and I'm wearing my blue uniform, I will have people tell their kids I'm a Union soldier thinking we're reenacting the Civil War. But during the Revolution, we do basically have a Civil War here during the Revolutionary time period between neighbors and even family. But when people think about wars in the South, they primarily think about the Civil War. The story of the revolution in the South is so important, and your book, and I do hope you write a follow-up through the rest of the war after Guilford Courthouse. First, why did the British decide to focus on the Southern Theater? Well, that's a good question. Um, By about 1778, um, the war in the North had really come to a a standstill. That, That doesn't mean it was inactive, but... Uh, the main British army under General Burgoyne had surrendered at Saratoga in 1777. Uh, the British had to evacuate Pennsylvania in 1778 and retreat to New York City. They were making very little headway. And remember, the French came in to the war on the side of the Americans in the spring of 1778. And uh, that possibly is the greatest turning point of the war, even though it didn't involve uh, the Americans in a military uh, confrontation. Once the French came into the war, 
the British had to totally reallocate their assets because all of a sudden, with the French as the open and declared enemy, they had to devote more of their naval resources to home waters to protect the island, the British Isles. They had to uh, uh, divert forces to the West Indies to protect their sugar islands in that theater. Uh, There were other stations in India and um, all around the world, Canada, uh, that they had to protect. So the resources, meaning men and materiel, that could be devoted to the war after the summer or starting in the summer of 1778 were drastically reduced. Yeah, In a way, this is World War II because World War I um, was the French and Indian War in a way, if you think about it. Sure, you can think about it that way, sure. So um, the British were looking at a different way of trying to capture large parts of the American colonies and to establish themselves uh, on uh, the North American soil Mm -hmm. to try to win some easy victories. And for years they had been, the British ministry and the king and... um, uh, uh, Lord George Gervain, uh, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, they had been they had been told by American loyalists in who had gone to London that there was a huge uh, amount of support for the Crown in the South, and all that was needed would be a determined effort by British forces to invade the South and support the loyalists and they would be able to suppress the rebellion. So that is why uh, the British ministry started looking at the South and began active operations at the end of 1778 and into the early parts of 79. Yeah, and Savannah Falls in 1778, very late in 1778. Right. Mm -hmm. And Revolutionary War students know the siege of Charlestown, which is now Charleston, and its eventual surrender, but between the fall of our sister city of Savannah and Charleston's surrender in May of 1780, there's a skirmish at Stono Ferry, not very far away from where I'm sitting right now, um, from the city of Charleston. And then a combined American and French force attempt to take Savannah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. um, The American forces uh, at that time were led by Major General Benjamin Lincoln, who was a uh, Massachusetts general. And uh, one interesting aspect of the war in the South is that the Continental Congress uh, seemed prone to appoint northern generals to command in the South. And I'll include Charles Lee, who really wasn't a northerner, but he was a former British officer, uh, Benjamin Lincoln, Nathaniel Green, um a little odd for that to happen, but that's the way it worked out. So Lincoln was in the South, and uh, they uh, were trying to uh, prevent the British from forays into the interior of Georgia and South Carolina. And then in the fall, early fall of 1779, the French arrived uh, uh, off the coast of Georgia in uh, with uh, a, fl- a small fleet, but also thousands of French regular troops. So Lincoln moved down towards Savannah. 
the French forces landed and they laid siege to Savannah. But as things started to move along or not move along, uh, by the beginning of October, the French started getting anxious uh, that things were taking too long and that her- that a potential hurricane in hurricane season could uh, really damage the fleet. So they launched uh, an assault on the British lines at Savannah and were defeated with very heavy casualties. So the French um, left Georgia and the American forces under Lincoln retired, uh, retreated back toward Charleston. Yeah, and the so, and so let's get into the siege and the capture of the city of Charleston. Um, why was the city so important for the British, and why did the Americans not evacuate to fight another day? Well, Charleston was the largest city in the South by far. There was nothing else close. Even I'm not sure of the population, but it was it was substantially larger than Savannah and Norfolk. Those were the other two main cities in the South. So uh, the British focused on Charleston in order to break the back of the rebe- of the rebellion in that colony, which between Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, South Carolina was significantly more wealthy. Um, when you think of Georgia and the revolution, you really have to think of only the coastal areas uh, up the Savannah River toward Augusta, but there was very little population in the interior of the colony. Uh, the state uh, in the revolution. <clears throat> so the British wanted to capture that um, key part as part of their strategy to refocus on the South. So the expedition, which was very large, um, focused uh, on Charleston. It was led by Sir Henry Clinton and the British Navy. And they landed in February uh, down toward what's today we would call Rockville uh, on Wadmala and St. Simon's Island, uh, and marched up to the the, uh, Charleston area, dug in, laid siege, and forced the Americans to surrender the city on May 12, 1780. Now, your question about why uh, why the Americans were caught inside the city, uh, Lincoln had, between Continentals, uh, which were regular troops and militia somewhere in the neighborhood of about 5,000 men, uh, which given the size of a typical battle in the revolutionary war, mm-hmm. especially in the South, that's an amazing number of troops for Americans uh, in the South. Cause you'll remember at Camden, the Americans had about 4,000 at Guilford courthouse, about 4,500 and and uh, Lincoln uh, was defending the city. Uh, to a certain extent, he was his hands were tied. He was under enormous pressure by city officials, both civilians and military, not to surrender the city. Uh, he did not really make any attempts to break out. Um, I guess he could be criticized for that. Uh, but uh, in some ways, he felt a lot of pressure. And then finally, with about two or three days left, uh, in hindsight, two or three days before he eventually surrendered, all of a sudden, some of the Charleston city fathers started to change their tune when the British yeah. got within a certain distance of the lines 
and were able to fire artillery right into the town. Then all of a sudden, uh, mines changed and uh, Lincoln surrendered. Yeah. And that was the largest surrender of the war for American forces. Um, there was no other uh, U.S. surrender uh, surrender of any, any United States or American forces in a war uh, uh, until until the Civil War. Yeah, and after this, the Southern Army is in shambles, uh, basically almost gone. Right. There were no more Continentals except a, a handful of cavalry up uh, up in the area of Lanoud's Ferry. Uh, there was one or two Continental regiments uh, in the Camden area, um, some in Georgia, but nothing... Uh, no, no leadership, no structure, no supply um, command. So uh, they were they were in they were in desperate straits. So we get a new commander here of Saratoga. How does he fare? Well, um, he did not meet expectations, as we would say today yeah. in a in a performance review, right? Um, the Horatio Gates was uh, brought out of retirement. He was uh, living in the Shenandoah Valley in what's now West Virginia, and uh, he was assigned to the command by Congress of the Southern Department. And it should be noted that uh, George Washington opposed that appointment, but Congress, in its wisdom, went ahead with it anyway. And there were also some Continental troops on the way down to Charleston that made it about as far as Petersburg, Virginia, when they got word that the city had fallen. And those were Maryland and Delaware Continental troops that were under the command of Baron de Kalb. And he kept moving toward South Carolina, and eventually Gates caught up with the Army uh, in southern North Carolina along the Deep River and took command. Uh, he was able to gather together North Carolina militia under General Caswell, some Virginia militia under General Stevens, and the Maryland and Delaware Continentals, a few uh, Continental cavalrymen, and moved toward the British post in the interior of South Carolina at Camden. And he was defeated at Camden on August 16, 1780, uh, overwhelmingly defeated. Um, his, his alignment of his troops was, a, I guess you would say, uh, faulty. And he had all his militia on the left of his line and in the center, and then put his continental troops on the right. And the British attacked the American left, and the militia, mostly the Virginians and the North Carolinians, panicked, fled the field, and Gates went with them. Now, he was criticized a lot, as I'm sure you know, uh, for fleeing with the troops, but he and Caswell and his staff were actually trying to rally the troops. And with, with British cavalry in pursuit and the panic um, of the militia, they went to Charlotte and eventually dispersed. A lot of the Virginians went all the way home. A lot of the North Carolinians never were seen again. Uh, the Continentals on the battlefield did somewhat better, but uh, many were captured. Others had to retreat. And eventually Gates was able to reconstitute 
a smaller, uh, poorly supplied, poorly equipped, poorly armed force of the remnants of that army in Hillsborough by the beginning of September. Yeah, and this will we'll get to Green obviously soon. This will bring General Green down, who of course is much beloved here in South Carolina now, and his story is finally starting to get known again to people here but after camden things do seem bleak as they should and those earlier they didn't take the oath of allegiance to king george would start to rethink that now but there are fighters in south carolina francis mary and the swamp fox who's a legend escaped who has escaped the siege of charleston thanks to his teetotaling ways and an ankle injury but that's another story for another day thomas sumter the gamecock and the wizard owl andrew pickens these men helped keep the revolutionary spirit alive with their militia and guerrilla tactics and then we have the victory at King's Mountain. Thank you to the Overmountain men. But one of my favorite characters of the war is Daniel Morgan. And he could say unkind things toward the militia, but he knew how to use them as we see at Cowpens. And Morgan played a role at Saratoga under General Gates. Now he is in the South where he thought he would be under Gates again. We know the importance of Saratoga. Why is Cowpens important as a victory for the Patriots? Um, I would, I, some, some of the folks would say that King's Mountain was really the big morale lifter after Camden. And King's Mountain was fought only with militia troops on the American side and only loyalist troops except for Major Ferguson, uh, who commanded the British. That was really the morale, morale booster in October of 1780. And... To me, that uh, that's always been striking for uh, for a long time, because if you plot things out like you have on a timeline and go from Camden to Kings Mountain to Cowpens, there's only about, I mean, help me do the math, there's only about seven weeks between Camden, which was a disaster, and Kings Mountain, which was a great, although small, victory for the Americans. August to October, so, right? Uh, early October is King's Mountain. Yeah. So that's a very striking turnaround. And even though we say, uh, it's often said that it was, you know, militia only, uh, Cornwallis wasn't there, uh, the British commander, Lord Charles, Charles Lord Cornwallis. Um, but what it did is, uh, as you noted on the way to Cowpens, it eliminated about fifteen to sixteen hundred of Cornwallis's force, which was a significant amount. So that, in in some ways, the King's Mountain victory was very telling because it it interfered and delayed Cornwallis's invasion of North Carolina. Uh, and the same thing happened again at Cowpens, where uh, Daniel Morgan defeated. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton of the British side, and again eliminated 800 to 1,000 men of Cornwallis's force. And think about where Cowpens is in relation to the British base at Charleston, where you are. That's a long way to go on foot. And that meant that Cornwallis, who had just lost over a thousand men at King's Mountain, then about a thousand men captured and killed at Cowpens. His force was significantly reduced. It was ill-supplied, and he was 
still not able to catch up with the American forces. So in Cowpens, that was another another real blow to the to the to the British side. And think of it this way also: what if uh, a lot? Uh, excuse me. A lot of a lot of the uh, troops that were captured or 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 killed or wounded at Cowpens were very experienced British regulars from the Seventh Regiment of Foot, Seventy First Regiment of Foot, Tarleton's Legion, artillery. Uh, what impact would those troops have made if Cornwallis had had them at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse? That's an interesting question. It's a what if, but um, very, very uh, significant blow to the British strategy of catching up with Green and trying to capture him. No, yeah, absolutely. And even if it was, you know, if you think about like the normal, if 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 he if Cornwallis could have used. Tarleton's full legion the way he would have at Camden at Guilford. Yes. I mean, right. <laughs> a whole different story. That is a very interesting, it's like a scary question, too, I mean, to think about. So after Calpins, though, the race into North Carolina begins with Morgan's light forces meeting up, you know, with trying to meet up with the rest of the army. And by the way, and this is just an interesting side note, and when you you know, go back and you study history and you study your family history too. And we're trying to do it with my wife's family too. My wife's mother was a Cheryl or Sherrod. And we recently oh, yeah, visited yeah. the Cheryl family graves that were on high enough ground to survive the flooding of Cheryl Ford <laughs> when they dammed right. up the river in that area. Um, but Green, you know, the area that Green had asked Morgan to protect, but has the Patriot forces are crossing the Yakin and Catawba River, Catawba River, Cornwallis is moving quickly. Because he had lightened himself, as he says, of his baggage train, right. meaning he burned his wagon train, a decision which will catch up to him later in relation to supplies. But the countdown to Guilford Courthouse is on. And you wrote the book, and, and John, in such a wonderful way, it feels like a race to destiny. And I guess it is a race to destiny. What resulted in that time and that place witnessing a battle on March 15, 1781? Well, one... one thing I would I would uh, uh, bring up here is I, I don't know that the question matters when did the race to the Dan begin I'm not so sure it was after Camden uh, I would say uh, prior to the Battle of Guilford Courthouse you had Morgan retreating from Cowpens toward the Catawba then you had uh, General Green who had arrived in uh, early December to take over command of the Southern Department he had separated his forces, and the other other forces that he had were over in what's called the Shara region uh, on the PD River, which, as as, uh, as most folks in the Carolinas know, the PD ter- is actually called the Yadkin up in North Carolina. Mm. And Green ordered his men to concentrate at Salisbury, which is on the Yadkin, and. The Americans under Morgan and uh, William L. Davidson and other militia commanders, they were trying to guard the fords of the Catawba, including the one you mentioned, Sherald's Ford, uh, which is uh, one of the northern fords. And they just didn't have enough men to guard and defend everywhere. And so the British fainted north uh, toward Cheryl's Ford and and uh, up toward um, 
shallow for. They didn't get they didn't quite get that high at, at this point. But their actual attack was at Cowan's Ford, which is which is south uh, on the Catawba River. And really, I think at that point, when they successfully crossed the Catawba and were on the same side of the Catawba that Morgan was on and the uh, Americans under Green were trying to link up with Morgan's troops at, at Salisbury, I think that's where Green really started to say, okay, we can't really stop them all the time at these at these fords on the Catawba. And initially he was suppo- he he wanted his troops to rally and concentrate at Salisbury, which is on the west side of the Adkin. But once the British were were on the same side uh, of of the Catawba that he was, he ordered the men. He ordered his troops to concentrate instead at Guilford Courthouse, and that was on the east side of the Yadkin. Uh, the main road from Salisbury to Guilford Courthouse was the old Salisbury Road, and that crossed the Yadkin near Salisbury at what was called Trading Ford. And the American forces uh, were able to cross. By the time the British got there, only hours later, the river had flooded. There were no more boats available to transport them over the Yadkin. <clears throat> Green's, Green pulled back to Guilford. So imagine Cornwallis in Salisbury deciding, well, I can't cross, and I'm going to have to get across the Yadkin. So while Green focused on concentrating at Guilford Courthouse, Cornwallis went north and crossed the Yadkin at Shallowford, which is north of Trading Ford, uh, upstream from the Yadkin River. And this is really where Green and Cornwallis, uh, in my opinion, began the race for the dam. Because Mm -hmm. Green had no other choice at this point but to protect his small force, get them to safety behind a natural obstacle, which is a river, and wait for reinforcements from North Carolina and Virginia. Um, And as far as the race to the Dan, it is an exciting episode. I think it's exaggerated a little bit too much in in which some modern writers uh, depict it as being watched by all America and, uh, uh, you know, almost cheering from the sidelines as they caught up on CNN to find out where the armies were. You're romanticizing well, a bit. A yes, that's, a, that's exactly right. And you have to remember, it only lasted about four or five days. And in an era where it probably took 10 days to get a dispatch from... Hillsboro, North Carolina, say, to Philadelphia, there wasn't anybody watching this in, in the same regard. So anyway, Green tricked Cornwallis uh, into going after the wrong part of his army, at a, which was, which was uh, under uh, General Oso, I'm, I'm sorry, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Otho Holland Williams, and um, he, Green tricked Cornwallis into thinking that Green's army was going to cross the Dan River near what's now Danville at a place called Dix's Ferry. 
And so he sent a light force, which had cavalry under William Washington and Light Horse Harry Lee, uh, light infantry under Williams and John Eager Howard, who were both Maryland Continental officers. And Cornwallis thought that was the rear of Green's army. And so they fought him every step of the way, kept sometimes only 100 yards in front of him on the road to Dix's. But meanwhile, Green brought the main body of his forces to the Fords uh, near what is now South Boston, which was Irwin's Ferry and Boyd's Ferry. And that's where he actually crossed. And eventually Cornwallis figured that out. And when he did, uh, the light infantry and the cavalry that he had been chasing, they switched over to the same road Green was on and barely got across the river hours in advance of the British. And they took all the boats the Green and others had collected in advance, uh, crossed the river, brought the boats to the so-called American side of the river, and the British were basically just left standing there, uh, really unable to cross, too weary, and just imagine how far they are from their nearest supply source, which at that point would have been Wilmington, but very, very far. Uh, a lot of the British had not had new uniforms or, or, or shoes issued since uh, Camden in the end of August of 1780. So Cornwallis' force was a worn-out was a worn out uh, uh, outfit, as, well, as was Green's, too. But that's different for the British. They're not used to that. Um, no, when they were in garrison at Charleston, they would have been easily supplied. Same thing with Camden to a certain extent. But once they took off, uh, you know, toward, toward Charlotte and Cowpens and Salisbury, it was definitely difficult to resupply them. So Green has, by the time Guilford Courthouse comes around, Green's losing Morgan. And it's because of an old injury from Montreal. It's flared up again. Um, but Green relies on his advice, and they even are still writing letters. Um, and he uses some tactics of Morgan's. Um, when yes. looking at the battle and times leading up to it, I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but I mean, it's just from reading the book, it's it's a question that I've, I've had. And I wanted to ask you, because I'm, I'm lucky enough to get to you know, talk to people who I know downtown. I get to talk to, you know, people who run the old exchange building downtown. I'm friends with the guy who runs the powder magazine downtown. I'm lucky enough and blessed enough to get to talk to you today. Is Green defensively playing offense before this battle? Because he's setting up a defense, but it also feels like he's he has an offense in a way, too. Right. One of, and that, that's that's a good point, and it also proves to me you read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's one of the major, I think, differences in my interpretation of what was going on right before the battle than uh, most of the previous studies, including uh, uh, Larry Babbitt's and Josh Howard's book from about 10 years ago and John Buchanan's book from about... I don't know, 25 years ago now, probably. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Um, there's a misconception that uh, Green somehow uh, months in advance had identified Guilford Courthouse as the best place in the Carolinas to have a battle, and somehow he maneuvered Cornwallis into attacking him there. 
Um, now, it is true that the army had been camped at Guilford Courthouse um, in January, I'm sorry, in uh, February after the British crossed the Catawba. And so Green would have seen the terrain. He would have seen the fact that there was a crossroads there that uh, on the old Salisbury Road, that there were some other key uh, key roads uh, leading from Guilford Courthouse and, and from the uh, Newmarket Friends Meeting House. Um, but all, as I point out in one of the chapters of the book, right before the battle, there are probably eight to ten contemporary sources, uh, including Green's correspondence at the time, uh, Light Horse Harry's correspondence, William Washington, uh, others, um, that Green was actually moving to attack the British, uh, not just to take up a defensive position at the courthouse region and hope and expect Cornwallis to attack him. So before the battle, the British had moved to Deep River Friends Meeting House, which for folks who know North Carolina, it's roughly in the area of a small, uh, kind of a small town called Jamestown. But it's kind of between, the, the way to think of it, it's between modern Greensboro and modern High Point. And it's on the Deep River. Um, that's where Cornwallis's troops were. And Green had been reinforced heavily by North Carolina and some Virginia militia, but also uh, several hundred Virginia Continentals. So he felt powerful enough to move after Cornwallis. And it's clear from the correspondence uh, two days before the battle and the day before the battle that he intended to attack the British where he found them. And the two generals facing each other, Green and Cornwallis, what kind of generals were they? What, where would you see them on the battle for? Are they behind the lines? Are they in the midst of the battle? Are they in both, depending on the situation? What kind of generals are they? They were very close to the lines, and you had to be in the 18th century. There were, as you know, and everybody knows, there were no electronic communications, uh, the, any kind of communications were through couriers or aides, uh, uh, staff members. So they had to be very close. In Cornwallis's case, he came very near to being captured during the fighting on the second line in the woods of the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. He had also had two horses shot out from under him. And by the, by the time the battle ended, he was actually riding a dragoon's horse that was not his own. Uh, Green also was almost captured, probably about 30 yards away from the British lines at some point, and but for the warning of one of his longtime aides, Colonel Lewis, uh, is a great possibility that he might have been captured as well. So these folks were, were right up in the front lines. And the same thing could be said for Morgan at Cowpens and Gates and Cornwallis at uh, Camden, uh, very, very up close to the lines because you had to be. And of course, uh, Guilford, the Battle of Guilford Courthouse was in March 1781. It was a, a kind of a, one of those rainy, misty winter southern days. But, and uh, between, between that and the smoke of the cannons and the muskets, uh, visibility 
in the woods really decreased. So in order to get a kind of a feel for the battle in, in a wooded terrain like Guilford, uh, you, the generals really had to, had to go see things for themselves on the flanks and in the center, what have you. Yeah, and are we talking when we're talking woods? We're talking. Are we talking pine thickets in the area at that time too? Or well, the, the descriptions are that it was a it was wooded terrain. Um, it was difficult to get through. Uh, there was a lot of brush, uh, a lot of downed uh, down trees. Uh, it would not quite have been as thick as folks who have been to the battlefield today can see it. Mm -hmm. um, there were also some open areas around the courthouse and uh, uh, between the Green's third line was at the bat was near the courthouse. Mm -hmm. And there was a Creek at the bottom of the courthouse. Uh, I'm sorry, at the bottom of the Hill and the Ridge. And that was all open, but, but where the front line was, there was, there was woods overlooking the fields of the Hoskins farm. And I think particularly the second line area was probably the most wooded and, and difficult terrain to get through. Yeah. And I just, I asked that question because I want people to understand with the smoke, if you've ever been around anyone firing, you know, just pe three people standing around th firing muskets for a demonstration, it puts out right. a bit of smoke. If you've ever been around a cannon firing or two cannons firing side by side, it gives out a bit of smoke. Imagine thousands of these going off, thousands of muskets going off. Imagine a battery of cannons going off, and they're all going off simultaneously, and then you have these woods added into it. It's going to cause confusion also. Yeah. And so I, I just wanted to you know, give the people the idea of how confusing a battlefield can be, too, not just for commanders, but for men fighting side by side, too, and also how orders can get confused and things of this nature also. It's, uh, it, it's, it's not like you see in a movie. A lot of the time, because you you have to in a movie they have to get that shot. You know, you have to be yes. able to see people. So it's a it's very scary, um, right? For the men fighting. And doctor, I want people to buy the book, so I don't want to go too much more into it because you go very much <laughs> detailed into the story and, and into the battle at Guilford Courthouse. But history is history, and we know the end sees the British in command of the field, but at a heavy cost. Cornwallis right. claims a victory, but it's a very, very hard cost victory. Did Green understand better than most others Washington's view of what maybe we call today playing the long game? Well, I mean, there's always a danger, as you know, of, of reading backwards from the result that we know that happened. Um, you know, they didn't, the, 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 the men at the time didn't know that there would be another two and a half years of the war going on before Charleston uh, was evacuated or two, two years or so of the war. Um, I, I think what I would say, which is probably what you're asking is both Washington and green knew that in order to keep up the, as green would say, the spirit of the people, meaning the morale Mm -hmm. and to have a visible, tangible symbol of the revolution, they had to have a field force on foot that was able to symbolize the ongoing struggle. 
And that meant more than just militia. Um, it meant a continental presence, a department, a supply chain. Um, so Green knew, in fact, that, that, that is probably why he withdrew from the battlefield um, when he did. It's a little difficult to get the timing down because most of you know most most of the enlisted folks uh the the foot soldiers and the in the regiments and the militia units they 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 didn't have watches um a lot of times the officer the the senior officers would so it's a little bit difficult to get the exact timeline of how long the battle lasted and and um you know if if you were in the front line and the battle started at one o'clock and you ran because the British attacked, your battle was over. So, you know, you, you had to kind of rely on some accounts of, of folks who were in the front lines all the way to the, to, to Green's headquarters. Um, but I think when Green decided to retreat, which what I'm getting at about the time is it struck me as, as, uh, that that decision to pull the plug and and retreat so as not to get overwhelmed seemed to come fairly quickly once the British appeared at, in the courthouse area in the third line. And Green, to get to get to your your point about seeing that this was going to be a long game and that that he didn't need to to risk his army that took so much effort to collect um, that he could withdraw safely with the bulk of his troops and still be in the field and still resist. Um, uh, that decision was very weighty. And, and just picture yourself, or I picture myself in command. Um, who, you know, making that decision would be very, very difficult. Um, so, yeah, I think he did see the long game and, and um, I, I would, you know, I, I, it just struck me when I was doing the research and reading, you know, when that climax came at the third line, when to pull, when to pull the trigger no pun intended, uh, to, to withdraw and say, okay, we're not going to win this. We're not going to, you know, rout the British or capture their army. This isn't going to be a Saratoga or a Calpin, but it's, the, it's going to be in the long run, uh, favorable. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. It sure does. John, thank you for taking time to talk to me today. It was a great thrill to spend part oh, of my good. morning talking revolutionary war with you. Great, great. Well, thanks for having me. I want to thank you, the listener, as well. Remember, the Battle for Guilford Courthouse, a most desperate engagement, will be available March 2nd, 2020. Like I said in the interview, it covers a large part of the Southern Campaign up to Guilford Courthouse. When people think of the Revolutionary War, most think of Lexington and Concord, Bunker Hill, Saratoga, Yorktown. All important places, but we had battles down in South Carolina and North Carolina, Georgia, too. The war wasn't over after Yorktown, though. General Green himself, along with the Swamp Fox, kept pushing into South Carolina with the goal of containing the British around Charleston. We have a book just about General Green by Lee Moore, and you can buy on our website. 
Why not order it while you pre-order Battle of Guilford Courthouse? Learn why it was important in negotiating the end of the war to keep the British as close to Charleston as possible. Interesting stuff. If you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed on a future episode, or have a question, shoot me an email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. I want to again thank Jane Bill's unnamed band project again for the theme song to the show. You can find them on Facebook by searching for Jane Bill's unnamed band project. See you next time. <laughs>